0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. 1 Samuel, chapter 7. We haven't heard from Samuel in the text since chapter 4, verse 1, but we sure do now. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, we saw the people of Israel act very foolishly and presumptuously, They were decisively defeated by the Philistines in the battle at Ebenezer, suffering over 34,000 casualties and the capture of the Ark of the Lord. God used this terrible defeat and the capture of the Ark to actually fulfill His previous word about what would befall, befall the corrupt spiritual leadership of the high priest's sons, and also Eli, their father. God literally removed all three of these men from priestly office. Eli's two evil sons were killed in the Philistine battle. And the news of the ark's capture literally killed Eli as he died falling over and breaking his neck when he heard what had happened. In chapter 5, the Philistines learned the hard way that even though they captured the Ark, the God who was represented by the Ark could not be possessed by anybody. First, God humiliated the Philistine god Dagon by causing the idol to fall over before, fall over in front of, fall over in a posture of bowing before the ark. And he did that two nights in a row. The second time, Dagon's head and hands weren't broken off. It says they were cut off. And then every Philistine town where the ark was taken suffered terrifying affliction and plague and death. So much so that the people demanded that their Philistine leadership send the ark back to the people of Israel, complete with a guilt offering to Jehovah God. In chapter 6, the weak and ignorant faith of the Israelites manifests itself again in their irreverence so much so that the Levite priests transgress the law they are supposed to uphold in worship by offering an unclean sacrifice and then mishandling the ark, actually making it a common attraction. The Lord struck down, therefore, many of the men of Beth Shemesh, where this happened, and the people then acted exactly as the Philistines had, and called for the men of Kiriath-Jerim to come get it, which they did. They didn't want this God, their God, in the midst of them either. We saw in the first two verses of chapter 7 how the people of Kiriath-Jerim, who were not even Israelites how they took on the privilege and responsibility of housing the Ark with something very special, genuine faith. These people were Gibeonites, descendants of the Gibeonites who had tricked Joshua into allowing them to live when Joshua was conquering the the land of Canaan when the Israelites finally had entered it. God is getting across something very, very important here. And that is that his true people are those who respond to him in faith. Trusting in God's grace, humbly adhering to God's word, the people of Kiriath-Jerim had the privilege of housing God's holy ark for a generation until King David came to take the ark and bring it into Jerusalem. During the 20 years the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim, all the house of Israel, we read, lamented after the Lord. Now remember, the Philistines had destroyed Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, so the ark had remained in this little Gibeonite city. Things were not going the way they were supposed to and the israelites knew it how could they not they also knew the fact that their own presumptuous sins had brought all this trouble in the first place if you're able would you please stand as i read first samuel chapter 7 verses 2 through verse 17 the end of the chapter first samuel 7, 2 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, And the Lord answered him, and Samuel was, excuse me, this is important, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines, and there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on to a circuit year by year, to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe may be seated. Well, today, we get to actually hone in on and focus on God extending his mercy again. That should bring joy to your hearts. I don't know whether you've noticed it yet. I don't see how you couldn't. But the people of Israel's hearts sure were, as we sang earlier, prone to wander. Our hearts sure are prone to wander. We need God's mercy. And this chapter is an incredible description of how God delivered his in this particular time in redemptive history. For 20 years, the son of the house of Abinadab, whose name was Eliezer, had charge of the ark of the Lord, we read in verses 1 and 2. We get a mixed picture here, don't we? On the one hand, the ark was being kept faithfully, in Kiriath-Jerim and the Israelites were lamenting after the Lord, which means that they were expressing their sorrow and mourning to the Lord, and therefore longing after the Lord because of a current state of affairs. <clears throat> but on the other hand... The people, we read in verses 3 and 4, had held on to their false foreign gods. And we point our finger and say, how could you do this? Well, look around, folks. Where do our hearts tend to go? What do we tend to worship in our culture? What's really most important to us? And we see that we're all in the same boat as far as our proneness to do the same thing. So what's going on here? Isn't this a description, again, that we're very familiar with? People who feel their loss, and these people are still not completely free of the Philistines. I'm sure you realize that... uh, a young man named David's going to appear on the scene and has to deal with a very big Philistine. It's not over. There's just a, a period of peace here, peace in quotation marks for a while. These people feel their loss, and they see their religious system seemingly in shambles. I mean, the ark is in a little town that's not even inhabited by Israelites. And yet these people are more faithful to the Lord than the rest of them. And these people also know that their own presumptuous sins had brought on all this trouble. So this is also a really good picture of the state of their hearts. They're torn and they're in shambles. Lamenting after the Lord. And that means mourning and even wailing but they were still hanging on to other gods. You know, they just couldn't quite get rid of them. I doubt that Samuel had been silent during this time. It looks like verse 3 condenses what Samuel had been doing so that when the text says, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, we see that Samuel... Had not gone to the neighborhood town's stadium that could house the whole population of the country, but rather that he had been going all over the place preaching, and finally, finally, he could see hearts that were ready for repentance throughout the land. 1 Samuel 7 is one of the best places in the whole Bible to learn what true repentance looks like. The bigger picture here in chapter 7 is God extending his mercy. In fact, God's work to bring his people to repentance is actually a big part of him being merciful. In other words, true repentance is part of God's merciful work of keeping his people. And when we pray for the current state of affairs in our own country, in our own state, in our own communities, we pray for God's mercy. And what's the first thing that comes to mind? That our people will repent. These people were brought along by the Lord over a period of years which is usually the way he works. It's not always spur of the moment one big bang and then everybody else comes in line. Most of the time it's slower, but God does what he pleases. Here we see over a period of years. They were over those years feeling and expressing their sorrow, and longing to see God work amongst them again. He let this state of affairs go on, the not knowing, the not having a a real place for worship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to do what? Exactly what he does with us, get our attention. And for some of us, that takes a whole lot of God's doing. During this time, we read, they were also hearing the faithful preaching of God's word by Samuel. Repentance often begins with the sorrow and grief and realization of our misery and condition, but it's not just sorrowful emotions, is it? Samuel makes this clear in verses 3 and 4. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtarah from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And then, verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah, and they served the Lord only. How often do we read something like that? We think, wow, that must have been quite a message. The point is, this had been the message for quite a while. So repentance does not stop with sorrow and tears and weeping and lamenting. But moves to concrete action, which displays this exclusive allegiance only to the Lord, and that's the change of mind and the change of heart that we see happen usually. I belong to the Lord. Wow, that's not a burden. That's the greatest privilege in all of life, in all of creation. Therefore, I will act. I will bow down before him alone. I will get rid of these idols. The difference between godly sorrow or grief and worldly sorrow or grief, as you probably realize, is highlighted by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, Because many of us think, oh, look, those people are really sorry for their sin. Or we feel like, well, I'm sorry for it. So that's it. That's all God requires. But Paul goes on, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. We see this distinction throughout Scripture. As 1 Samuel 7, 4 says, So the people of Israel put away the bales and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Dale Ralph Davis writes, God loves his people too much to tolerate their cuddling up with rivals. If that helps you remember this point, use it. Another pastor writes, Samuel's teaching reminds us that true spiritual renewal is always accompanied by repentance from worldliness and sin. Always. Just as true revival also bears fruit in the reformation of Christ's church according to God's word. In verses 5 and 6, we see the beautiful, corporate, heartfelt repentance confirmed. And I hope I read that slow enough if I didn't keep reading it over. This this is just an incredible picture here. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah now we understand I think all of us understand that individual sins should be confessed and repented of on an individual basis Probably we all agree. Yes, of course. I need to work on that, but yes. But here we see Israel gathering to confess and repent of their national and corporate sins. Does that change the picture a little? It's easy to act humble when you're by yourself. It's a little different to put it into practice with everybody that you've been posturing before your whole life. Mizpah was a traditional meeting place, and it was only about five miles north of Jerusalem. And it's not clear here exactly what is meant by they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. What does that specifically refer to? Well, if you want to go off on a rabbit trail, they'll take you all over the place. This is one to go for, because it can mean a lot of things. Basically, there's a couple of basic basic ways to see this. Some think it signifies deep distress as the water is wasted, so Israel has wasted its status as God's covenant people, and this was a a corporate demonstration of what they've done, that everybody would kind of be able to take part of and be and and be uh, seen as a part of it. Others see it as a symbol of pouring out before God, confessions of sin drawn from the depths of the heart, and you know all. All these basic ideas here are, are probably hitting at parts of the truth. You put them all together, you probably got a good picture. It might mean something specific, really specific, but it is kind of strange that there's no real direct reference to doing this sort of thing anywhere else. Either way, both, both of these ways were, were designed to express what? They were designed to express contrition for their sin. Some, some visible way that, was, that could be seen by everybody that everybody could take part of, besides just saying something out loud. And what was the purpose of, of public fasting then? It was to express special humiliation and grief for sin. You know, there's a lot of Christian groups that can't get together without eating. Not to mention that most of us can't miss a meal without getting out of sorts and then using that as an excuse. They didn't have that issue here because they fasted all day. It was a it was a decision that they all wanted to be a part of to show what? Their humiliation and grief for their sin. Now, you put those two public demonstrations together and what are you seeing in your own minds most of the whole nation gathered in this place I don't know about you but I see a beautiful picture because they are humbling themselves before their God and before one another really and they're saying hey we're all part of this problem and I don't know when you've experienced something like that in your own life, but it's there's nothing more beautiful than that. Because all of a sudden, everybody's on the same plane. Everybody has an issue. And then that directs your attention to where it should be, which is the Lord. That's why we read, then, They said, we have sinned against the Lord. So what did the Israelites do as they gathered before the Lord? They humbled themselves and made clear their unworthiness. In other words, this was a corporate declaration of them being emptied of self. Now, in verses 7 through 10, we, we see something here that is so, so important for us to remember. The people's experience here, they experience God's mercy as they faithfully relied upon him. And it gets kind of exciting, because something else is going on, which we read. We need to realize here just how precarious their position was. In chapter 4, they acted presumptuously, putting their trust in a piece of God's furniture that they looked at as being rather magical, which, yeah, that's how they really viewed the ark. And they viewed having that piece of furniture in their possession as almost a magical solution to them being victorious and delivering them from disaster. Well, they learned and had been learning some really tough lessons since then for the last 20 years, since they didn't have a corporate place to even worship. And really, God was demonstrating his symbolic withdrawal, which he does several times with his people. He's not really gone, but since they don't want him there, he kind of says, okay, let's, let me show you what will happen when I'm not, even though we know he is And he does that first from the tabernacle in Shiloh, which is interesting. Then in the crushing defeat of Israel's forces, including the capture of the ark and the death and thus removal of the ruling priesthood of Eli's house. By the way, that didn't finish yet, but Eli and his two sons are now gone. There's there's more family that are priests then getting their attention by having the ark, the symbol of his presence, moved from the Philistines' hands to the Gibeonite town of Kiriath-Jerim. You guys like like really vivid examples? Can you name any more <laughs> clear, vivid examples in that list? Well, God didn't tell us. Well, God, I didn't see that. How could How could anybody not? He's making it so clear. Here's non-Israelites who were faithful to him, gladly hosting the ark for the past 20 years. And these Israelites themselves still had foreign gods, Baals and the among them. But God's word that Samuel kept preaching had made clear their dire predicament what god does with his word it seems they finally got it that all they could bring to the table was what their posturing their promises all they bring here is prayer that's it they were dangling by the mere mercy of yahweh is one way you could say this The Philistines, hearing that Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, can you imagine that? These guys going, hey, look, the target just got a lot bigger. They're all in one place. Let's go for it. It's basically their strategy here. So they do. They see no recourse then, as the people hear, about what is transpiring, what is coming, and then what is actually arrived. But they take their cue from Samuel. Remember what he said in verse 3? In verse 3, Samuel says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Go a little more. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, verse 5, and I will pray to the Lord for you. I will pray to the Lord for you. They share his position here, don't they? Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, and I don't think this was a meek request, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Their lives were in danger from the Philistines, but their whole way of life and their relationship with God seemed to be a big question mark at this point. That's why they had come together. They were desperate, but in their desperation, they were turning to one who is omnipotent. How many times do we see that in Scripture? Have you ever been in that situation, so desperate that you finally not only acknowledge God's omnipotence, but you turn to Him and you didn't have anything else to offer? There is no payment here. There is no trading here. There is no promises here. They just turned to Him. Verse 9, and I hope you see this. So Samuel took a nursing, what? Lamb. And offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Hmm, wonder what that's pointing to. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. These are not patsy words. Crying out to the Lord for Israel. He wasn't just into it. He was representing his people. Let's get this straight. The Lamb was a picture of Christ as our sacrifice. First Samuel had to offer a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins the only way that sinners can be forgiven by God and restored to His favor. And then when Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, Samuel was himself a picture of Christ as our high priest. Think of all the months going through Hebrews. Were they worth it? He is a picture of Christ as our high priest, because what does Christ do as our high priest? In other words, in Samuel's intercession on Israel's behalf, we see the picture of the office of Christ as our high priest. This is the true secret, if you're going to say that, of steadfastness. What? We rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual, who is constantly interceding for us as the risen Lord. Nothing is quite so moving as knowing that I am a subject of Jesus' intercessory prayer. And that's what Samuel was picturing. And I hope you get this. Those of you that are blessed in just going to that incredible Sunday school class where Sinclair is explaining this stuff, uh, touched on this a little bit didn't he this morning? This is another side of the same coin that God loved us chose to put his love on who he would choose to be his and he sent his son to do that this is a picture of the king of kings interceding for you not some sergeant private lieutenant captain even a general this is the man this is his son who is interceding for you and these people needed to hear this as that philistine army approached and start this battle. And it was happening at the same time he was offering the sacrifice of the lamb. Is this an incredible picture or what? As Samuel, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack to Israel. But. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. It's like all the little bitty worshipers of Dagon were just shoved off the shelf and their heads, hands were cut off right here to protect his people. What do we call this action? It's called experiencing mercy. Do you see why? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And you can put them together because they go together. But mercy, these people have been ignoring their God. They've been worshiping false gods. They've been denying Him. They've been evil in so many ways. And God extends his mercy, and everybody there that day, which was pretty much the whole nation, we read, experienced it together. Wow. So now we kind of shift into the high gear and see how God uses Samuel again to help the people remember his mercy. And we're going, well, how could they not? I mean, they routed them, they chased these guys all over the place, back, you know, to who knows who, in the hill country. Routed them. Surely they'll remember that. Well, what do you think? How long does it take for you to remember the last big Evidence of mercy in your life from your God. After the rout of the Philistines, which finished there in verse 11, the emphasis becomes remembering what God has done. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us simply implies that what Jehovah has been for his people, he also will be for his people. There's no question mark here. Memorial stones are especially meaningful because they commemorate what God had done in the past for his people, and so they're a witness to what God would yet do in the future. So when you see him, you went, wow, when we crossed the River Jordan to come into the land, we were scared out of our minds, and Joshua said, no, let's pile up 12 stones in the middle of the thing, so that we'll remember. God told us to go in. We got in trouble because we didn't want to go in. We had to wander around for 40 years waiting again until it was time to go in, and now we're going in. Poof, here's the stones. So when your kid comes up and he says, how'd y'all get over here? you didn't want to, you were disobedient, you'd done all this stuff. We said, God was merciful. He said, go, we went. And he went before us. There's nothing wrong with memorial stones. We just sang this verse. This is the song we just sang this morning. 457. No accident. James is sneaky on these things. He gets them in. He gets the scriptures in when he finds out what we're preaching. And every... Child, at least they used to, know knows this hymn. So, he set up this stone between Mitzvah and Shin. We all need help in remembering, and Ebenezer actually means stone of help. how God works in redemptive history and in our lives. Many times we want to only focus and only remember the events of victory or deliverance. This happened to be one of those times. But here, Samuel is helping these people realize how God had been working through all these events to accomplish this purpose. His purpose is here. So, when we read till now, or some translations say the same thing, just using different words, of uh, verse 12, it covers all the past redemptive history, really. Samuel's pointing back in and, and these events, at least to how they got in trouble in the first place and what happened because of it. He's saying, You've got to remember all of this. It may be painful to remember. But remember where it's going, what it's pointing to. Here we have a victory to point to. Just like that happened, God will be faithful when something comes up again. Maybe not victory. Maybe you'll be going through a long period of time like that again. But God is not asleep at the wheel. He has a plan. He will fulfill it all. He will use everything. He doesn't... He uses everything in our lives to accomplish His purposes. What had seemed the darkest times of 20 years earlier had actually been the means for God helping His people to be delivered from evil leadership. I mean, that... Evil leadership, which had opened the door to much idol worship, which many of them had become a part of. So through those 20 years, God was helping them to know themselves, wasn't he? He was helping them to know their sins. He was helping them to know the bitter consequences and punishment for sins. Samuel is helping the people see that all these links to God's work in the past, help them now to rely on their faithful and sovereign God who works all things for his glory and their good. And some of these helps then may be in the forms of mercies, and some of them may be in the form of the words we don't want to hear, chastisements and discipline. But all are good for those who love God. I think Paul said something about that in Romans 8. That's how it goes together. Notice that Samuel even used, he even used the same name for the stone as the place where the army had been crushed. The town of Ebenezer was where the battle was. 20 years ago. And now he uses the same name for the stone to remember it. Is your home a place of memorials? I mean, you can do it a million different ways, but are there things visible or written down that, that you can use to help you remember how God works and has been faithful? You know, if, if you've ever read through the whole Bible day after day and I hope everybody's done that at some point hopefully many times one of the many things that comes into focus is how much of the record of the Bible is about God's people in trouble in fact sometimes it seems like that's all it is well that's because we're always in trouble but as you recognize that theme you also read other themes don't you? you also hear again and again about the God of that people. In Isaiah 63, 9, now listen carefully to this. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. And in His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. He is mentioned a lot in that verse. So when you know you need to exercise faith in the face of some present difficulty, or even something that's terrifying that you've never had to face before, you have to do something you've never done You have to face a situation, you have to work out of something that scares you to death. Because you are being tempted to despair in those situations and are pushed to the limit, almost sometimes too tired to care or upset that God seems so not there, what do you do? Do you know how to recall the biblical story? So you know you're not alone and not the first to face these things and are therefore encouraged in faith? What's another resource? And can you also review your experiential version of the biblical story? Yours. Of God's providential care and mercies over the years to you and your family And your church. Put those two together and what have you got? Ebenezer's all over the place. We stand in the present, but we dwell in the past, which so many people make fun of us for. But why do we stand in the present but dwell in the past? Because then we can be steadfast for the future. Memories, th- this is a Dale Ralph Davis quote again. He's, Memories keep gratitude fresh. And that gratitude keeps faith faithful. Memories keep gratitude fresh. And that gratitude keeps faith faithful. Our passage closes with a brief summary statement about Samuel's life. He's not out of the picture. He didn't die, I think, until chapter 27, somewhere way down the line there. But his calling to judge that we read here doesn't mean that he merely decided legal disputes. I think we need to mention this. But rather that he was actively involved in reproof and instruction and counsel for living under God's leadership. He was the last of the judges in that regard. The scope of his ministry was wide. We also see here that the exciting crisis moments in which he was used, and we've already looked at several of them, and he's not through, were not a daily or weekly occurrence. Do we realize that? He wasn't a crisis experience junkie. He didn't have to have that high all the time. And you know what? Nobody in life does. Our culture tells us we need to go after it every day, and if we don't, we feel somehow like we failed. That's a lie. I think that this passage ends here like this to to tell us something. Look at it. His life was really a slow-circuit ministry to some of the most boring towns on the face of the earth. And what was he doing? He was ministering. He was judging. He was preaching. It was an everydayness that was special. And that everydayness, out of that everydayness kind of life, comes the deep faithfulness that's, that he lived out and passed on to others. And boy, does the American church need to learn that one. Decades of faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh Lord God we are we are so encouraged to see your mercy poured out on your people here in 1 Samuel 7 and and what you taught them and how uh, you brought them to a point where their hearts were prepared for and they actually did repent and confess their sin and you poured out your mercy upon them you used Samuel your servant to pray for them as a type of Christ we see here, and we're, you've brought to our mind so many other biblical places where this picture is given of you, about you, and so many times in our own lives when, when we recognize your mercy to us through hard circumstances as well as the victories. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and our souls to make us ever mindful of your mercy and grace in that way. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand? I'm going to read the second verse, stanza, whatever. I just went blank. Of hymn number 457. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by the help I'm come.